All right, guys. Have fun. Good morning. My name, for those of you who do not know me, is Keith Sparrow. I am a pastoral intern here in my second year with Redeemer Church, and I have the opportunity to preach this morning. I'm excited about it. Now, we're continuing our Integrating Faith and Life sermon series. We've been going through, uh, this is the fourth sermon. We've dealt with marriage and sex, complementarianism. We've dealt with uh, singleness and dating, and now we're dealing with communication and conflict. Um, I'm excited to be engaging this, this issue. I'm also overwhelmed because communication is a huge thing, and it's what I'm doing to talk about this. So it's an overwhelming subject, so please bear with me. Um, words have such an overwhelming impact in our lives, yet we throw them around like grenades hoping that they're not going to go off in, in negative ways. So often we speak without thinking. We speak whatever comes to mind without any kind of filter, regardless of what it will do and how it will impact others. So often our words impact those around us. A parent's nickname to a child can have an enormous impact on their lives. My sister's nickname was Princess. Mine was Monster. You know, and looking back, I'm like, she's the sweet princess on them. This was before Monsters, Inc. Monsters weren't good. Monsters were the thing that was under the bed that was going to eat you. You know, and that just scared me. I'm like, what's wrong with me as a kid? What's wrong with me that my dad sees my sister as a princess, but me as a monster? See, that loving word, that nickname, said to be affectionate, said with, with, with my dad loves me, I know that, said with the most kind and gracious manner, became something that caused me to question my humanity as a child. Why am I not like others? So words have an enormous impression in our lives. It's with our words that we, we, we form and we help each other grow. We, we speak to our children to teach them. Now, when we're talking about communication, I'm going to talk about words a lot. I'm going to talk about speech a lot, but really, we're talking text messages, videos. We're talking about books that we write. We're talking about any time that we communicate with others. So often, words we can use to encourage people to pursue, to work harder, to strive for greater things than they thought they could do themselves. At other times, bullying and cruel words can drive people to depression and despair. Words matter. The way we communicate matters. Now, when we look at our culture, we're so steeped in culture, we don't think about the way we speak as a culture. But if you watch if you have Facebook and you watch your feed, just look about the way we talk about each other. Look at the, about the way that people engage in politics today. Whatever side doesn't agree with me, they are, I just say horrible things about them. Whatever, whatever anybody doesn't agree with what I say, well, they are, I don't even want to use the words when I talk about communication today. We've all experienced it. This 
cursing, swearing, vulgarities that are cast upon others. We live in a culture where we don't trust our politicians at all, where we have such a thing as fake news, and where name-calling and cruelty towards one another are common and just considered part of the game. It's just smack talk. Our culture reminds me, when I think about it, of Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, of Isaiah's vision of the Lord in which in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook And the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the people we are. Just like Isaiah's day, we are in a culture of unclean lips. And we are a people of unclean lips. And when we're confronted by the holiness of God, we see our sin more clearly. And we see this. Once again, when I say lips or speech, it's communication overall. I just want to make that apparent. But communication is not just words. How we say words matters. That's the difference between good job and good job. That's the difference between tone and volume and inflection. How we say these words matter. So 90% of what we say, I was a communication major, believe it or not, 90% of what we say is nonverbal. It's not the actual words, it's a text. It's, it's our face, it's our tone, it's our, it's our attitude as we speak. All these communicate things to one another. So what does the Bible have to say about this? Does the Bible speak about our speech? Does it teach about the seriousness of this? Yes, the Bible has a great deal to say. And it calls us to live a life of communication that's very different from our culture. It calls us to speak in ways that honor God and ways that bless others. We're going to find in our text today that we're going to look at the communication that honors God, recognizes its power, flows from a transformed heart, proclaims truth, and seeks reconciliation in conflict. Communication that honors God is going to recognize its power. It's going to flow from a transformed heart, proclaim truth, and seek reconciliation in conflict. So first, we're going to see how communication that honors God recognizes its power. We're going to see that in James 3, verses 1 through 12. If you'd like to turn there. So, as I said earlier, our speech is powerful. Speech is like dynamite. Dynamite can be used to build beautiful things, to build tunnels, to build Mount Rushmore. Dynamite can also be used to destroy people and lives. We think of our, of our words as just a, a puff from our lips that's here and gone but our words weigh heavily in power on those who hear them in our lives and the lives of others. So 
Let's, let's read. I'm going to read for us James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force to set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The, sun, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, fully de- full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, pour, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, in this passage, we see a number of pictures depicting, word pictures depicting speech in verses 2 through 5. The tongue is compared to a bit in a horse's mouth. A bit is a small piece of metal or, or other uh, item that they put in the horse's mouth in its jaw so they can direct the whole horse. A tiny thing that directs the whole horse's body. A rudder on a ship, the tongue is also compared to. A rudder on a ship is, is less than a hundredth the size of the ship. Yet it guides the entire ship and where it'll go. So likewise, the tongue, our speech, is one of the smallest things on our body. Yet it drives and impacts our lives. With our mouths, we speak. With our mouths, we make promises. With our mouths, we we make boasts. We proclaim Jesus is Lord. We make vows in marriage. These are all good things. With speech, we encourage one another. We bless one another. We call one another to flee sin and pursue righteousness. So words are powerful. Reflect back in your life for a minute. You can still remember a word said to you by an influential person in your life, a a parent, a pastor, an uncle, a teacher that you carry with you, that encouraged you, that blessed you. These words still have power in our lives. Communication, the Bible was given to us by men who communicated, who wrote things down that we may know the Word of God. So words have enormous power. And yet, as the tongue is powerful, we see in verses 2 through 5, it's in no way neutral as we often treat it. Oftentimes we think of our speech, we're like, well, it's neutral. Sometimes they use it for good, sometimes they use it for bad. It's okay. My, t- my, my speech is great. But in verses, uh, in verses 5 through 9, we see the sinful nature of the tongue. Because James does not say the tongue is bad, not just bad. 
when he refers to the tongue. James says that, the, that our speech, that our tongues are set on fire by hell and full of deadly poison. He gives the picture of a small flame starting a forest fire ablaze, that a small cigarette butt burning tens of thousands of acres we can think of in our, in our common culture every other couple of years out west. The tongue's natural inclination, apart from Christ, is toward evil. And so often when we speak without thinking, we pour out evil. When we speak without considering each other, we speak in ways that, that, that slander, that harm one another and don't bless. We, we argue and fight and quarrel and we don't show love and humility toward others. Now, James recognizes that as well. Because in verses 10 through 12, he rebukes believers. He's writing this to believers. The book of James is written to the church and how to live as Christians. And he points out in verses 10 through 12, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He points out that a fig tree cannot produce olives or a grapevine produce figs. These are mutually exclusive things. You don't get figs off a grapevine. You don't give olives off a fig tree. You go to a fig tree for figs. You go to a grapevine for grapes. So, much like a saltwater pond cannot produce fresh water, he says, neither should our speech that is blessing and honoring God also curse each other. He says very clearly, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the, image, in the likeness of God. James points out this serious issue we have with our speech. We are called to speak truth in love. We're called to communicate in ways that honor God and bless one another. We're called to communicate truth. And yet so often our speech is vulgar, it's cruel, it's slanderous, it's unthinking in our lives. We see that in this text we're called that we bless God and then we curse man. We will sing praises to God. We, Caleb, David, thank you guys for leading worship. We just praise God. But you know what? 15 minutes after we drive out of the parking lot, we may be cursing the guy who cut us off in traffic. It's like that. So easy to change from praising God to cursing man. So I hope we can see the power of our words. I hope we can see this, the sinful bent of our communication. Um, but we, what hope do we have then? James says it ought not to be this way. Well, we'll just see in the next passages, the next two passages, that communication that, that honors God flows from a transformed heart. So we're going to look at Matthew 12 and Matthew 15 to see what Jesus says about the connection between speech and the heart. And what we're going to find is that they're much more connected than we could ever dream or imagine. Matthew 12, 33 through 37, and Matthew 15, 10 through 20. Matthew 12, 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, pardon me, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus says it's out of the abundance of our heart, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. Our words overflow from the core of who we are. Not the the organ that beats, but the core of who we are. Our words overflow from that. Jesus also points out here, and this should give us great pause when we speak, that we will give account for every careless word. Give a thought for that for a moment. Every time we mutter, every time we grumble, every time we complain, every time we, we curse, every time we speak in such a way we're like, oh, I don't really want to do the laundry, honey. I'm guilty of that. I'm willing to confess that. Um, every time we grumble, we, will, we are going to be held to account for our words. So it's out of the abundance of our heart our mouth speaks. And in Matthew 15, 20, uh, 10 through 20, Jesus brings up the heart and speech again. In Matthew 15, 10 through 20, he says, He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is then expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is pointing out here once again, it's the abundance of the heart that produces our speech. But look at that. Out of, the, out of our heart flow Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. The last two are very clearly speech-based. False witness and slander. But it's out of the abundance of our heart these things flow. So our main issue in communication, while it's here in our tongues, it starts here in our hearts. We have a heart problem more serious than any medical issue. At this point, you may be asking, I've struggled with communication, or I haven't even bothered struggling with the way I talk to others my entire life. What hope do I have? If we look at our speech and we reflect back on the last couple hours, on the way we talk with our friends when we play games, and the way that we, we you know, have our, our, our coarse jesting and our barbed comments when we are trying to make ourselves appear smart so we, we dig into somebody else, Instead of speaking with love. 
what hope do we have? How can our hearts change from where they are so that we're producing good fruit? We need new hearts. We need transformed hearts, and we can only get that in Christ. There was a promise given by God in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, where God states, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This promise was given originally to the people of Israel during the exile in Babylon. But this promise still extends to us, those people who God has given his spirit. If we are in Christ Jesus, God is is worked to change our hearts from stone to flesh. He has transformed our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, "Let, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the first active step we can take to communication that honors God, that we can take ourselves beyond recognizing its power, the power of our speech, is trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. If we don't get this right, we will never have communication that honors God. If our hope is not in Christ, if we have not repented of our sins and trusted in him for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, we cannot honor God with our speech. We may be nice. We may be polite. You know, we may obey our mom's rules to be nice and don't talk bad about others, but we're not going to honor God with our speech. But when we trust in Christ, when we repent of our sins, when God works to give us a new heart in, in, in regenerating us and in, in justifying us and making his, us his child, we are changed, we are transformed. So after we placed our, our, our faith in Christ, as a number of us are here right now, well, we just dealt with the first point, our, our speech is power, we still have a problem. Our speech is still not perfect. Why is that? God is doing a work in us. He is changing our heart. He is, the term is sanctification. As God changes us throughout our lives more and more like Christ. So for those of us who are in Christ, we are called not to be passive in this. As I studied this text, as I studied the subject this came up more and more and kept hitting me and my, it convicted me seriously. So often, we come to Jesus, we come to repentance and faith, we trust and rest in Him for our salvation as we should, but then we say, well, I'm going to trust and rest in, in Jesus to take care of my sanctification. I'm going to trust and rest in the Holy Spirit, it dwells within me, and I can do whatever, I'm just going to kind of, you know, do my devotions, but not really make war against sin. I'm going to kind of Let's take it easy and, you know, God will do what God will do. You know, the Lord will take care of it. Guys, this is the wrong attitude. As Christians, we are called to pursue Christ-likeness. Christianity is a faith that rests secure in Christ's finished work for our salvation. Yet it's also a faith that calls us to pursue holiness. Christianity is a faith that calls us to pursue Christ-likeness. We're called multiple times in the New Testament 
to grow, to strive after, to, to grow in Christ-likeness. There's a number of ways we can do this. So we want to actively pursue sanctification. We want to actively pursue Christ-likeness. We want, how can we do this? First and foremost, prayer. If we spend much time with God in prayer, as we bring our hearts to Him, He makes our hearts more like His. Not only that, we can study the Word. We can hold each other accountable. And we can be very intentional in pursuing Christ-likeness, especially in this area of speech. If we don't pursue Christ-likeness in our speech, we are going to get soaked in this world and in this culture's form of communication so that we can't tell the difference when we speak who we are. So, for, you know, first action point, first application point, pursue Christ-likeness intentionally. Pursue holiness intentionally, not because it'll save you, but because you love your Savior and you want to be like Jesus. Please hear me. This has nothing to do with your salvation, everything to do with wanting to be like Jesus. Second, as we study this scripture, as we hold each other accountable in life transformation groups, in accountability groups, in community groups, we want to apply what the Scripture teaches. So it's not enough that we read the Scripture and say, yes, that's true, though that's the first step. It, we have to obey what the Scripture says then. We need to recognize our own failures, whether it be in communication and sin, and meditate and memorize, in part, meditate and memorize Scripture. What comes to mind well, James 1, 19 through 21 has been one of my memory lists for a long time that a friend here, Phil, helped me memorize years ago. James 1, 21, James 19 through 21, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to be angry, for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. This passage addresses two things, or more than two, but our need to listen, slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to be angry. So it addresses speech, listening, and anger. Great passage to meditate on, to battle your speech. The book of Proverbs, as Chet preached through a year and a half ago, two years ago, is full of Scripture dealing with communication that are good to meditate on. So that's the second point. We want to do what Scripture says. We want to pursue Christ-likeness the third application is we need to fill our hearts with things that honor God. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you think about what am I putting in my heart, what am I, if, if we truly become what we behold, what are we beholding? Are we setting our minds, are we setting our hearts on Christ? Are we setting our minds and hearts on, on entertaining ourselves constantly so we don't have any time to think, any time to meditate deeply, but instead we, we watch, you know, average household in the U.S. watches 30-some hours of TV a week. So, much like Philippians says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think upon these things. So let's meditate on Scripture. Let's think about God's attributes. Let's encourage one another to think about things, to meditate in our heart about things so that the overflow of our heart is our mouth speaking. 
And last but not least, once again, on application point here, I want to bring it back up again. We need to pray. If we're not starting by speaking with the Lord and continuing in prayer, we're not going to do these other things. Our hearts are not going to be changed if we're not seeking the Lord in prayer, going to Him and saying, Father, you know, confessing our sin, help me. But saying, God, change my heart so that it reflects yours. He wants us to pray that. He, he desires to change our hearts to make them more like Christ. That is a prayer that honors God. So those are all ways that we can strive to live with a transformed heart. God is doing the work by His Spirit if we're in Christ. But we want to pursue that. If we're not in Christ, if you say, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, then I would encourage you to think, to reflect on your life. Just reflect on your speech as we've been talking about it. Think about the way you communicate with others. Think about the way you talk to your brother and sister, your niece and nephew, your coworkers. Think about the way that you speak. Do you see the way you hurt people? The way you talk in ways that, that condemn, that curse, that hurts That speech is sin. And for that we are guilty and we're held accountable before God. And we're called in the end before God. We have no hope in our own works because we're sinners who've sinned against the holy God. We need to, by the grace of God, we're given, we we need a way out. By the grace of God, we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We have reconciliation with God in Christ. So if you do not know Christ, I want to encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Just tell me more about Jesus. Help me to know him. So thus far we've seen the communication that honors God, recognizes its power. It flows from a transformed heart. And third, it proclaims truth. So thus far from the scriptures, we've looked at what speech is not to look like for the most part and how to see our hearts transformed. But you know, James talked about blessing and cursing. Jesus spoke of our speech being the overflow of our hearts and being judged. How shall then we speak? There are many scriptures about speech in the, in the New Testament, more than I could read if we had two hours. And I don't think anyone wants to sit here for two hours. But there's a number of them. And the common themes are we need to communicate truth. We need to communicate blessing and grace toward one another to build one another up in love. Now, these are all ways to speak that are important. But I want to focus on one other area first. I want to bring us back to Isaiah 6. When I, when I talked to, spoke about Isaiah earlier, I showed how he was a people of unclean speech Uh, uh, He was a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. So let me read this again, Isaiah 6, all the way 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled filled with smoke. 
And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost from a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. God cleansed Isaiah's lips for a purpose. That purpose was Isaiah's call to be his ambassador, his messenger to his people with the message he had for them. In like way, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In like way, our speech as Christians is to be Christian. Our speech as Christians is that of ambassadors. We are to communicate with others in a way that the gospel of Jesus is communicated and they are called to trust in him. Oftentimes, when we talk about being ambassadors of Christ, when we think about missions, this is the the missions passage, right? You hear about this and it's like, this guy's going overseas to an unreached people group and that's when we pull out Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And that's true, that that is missions. But But being an ambassador for Christ is so much more than that. We think also maybe this verse deals with just our evangelism conversations. You know, when we engage a coworker or a person we don't know with the gospel, a cold contact, we go on campus and strike up a conversation at a coffee shop and share the gospel. We say, all right, that's where I was being an ambassador. That's true, but that's not it. We are ambassadors for Christ every time that we call one another to be reconciled to God. Every time that we call one another to pursue Christ. Every time we are in Redeemer's tots and kids and sprouts, we are proclaiming the gospel to people who don't know him that they may know him. Every time you are in your life transformation group, you are encouraging people to continue in Christ, to pursue holiness. The same in your community group. The same in your family. The same in your your, your devotion time with your children. The same in your conversations with your spouse, your friends, your coworkers. Every time we encourage one another, every time we speak to one another with the gospel to encourage each other to pursue and keep the faith, we are being God's ambassadors to one another. Encouraging one another to be reconciled to God. So we speak the gospel. We speak the message that God has given us as ambassadors. And that's huge. But we speak truth. We speak in ways that honor God and bless one another. What does this mean? You know, when we, speak, when we strive to speak the gospel to others, we want to communicate in ways that don't offend. Now, the gospel itself may be an offense to those who are perishing. Those who do not believe will be offended by the gospel. But our speech does not need to do that. We don't need to, to, to come to people and communicate in such a way when we share the gospel 
that we never get to the gospel because our communication is offensive. We want to share the gospel in such a way that we can not present a stumbling block in the way we talk to people. I, I went to the University of Illinois, and when I was there, Preacher Dan was on the quad. Phil, you know who I'm talking about. Others do as well. Preacher Dan was a, was a preacher who came out every, every week, once a week, and would come out, and he preached hellfire and brimstone. He preached, you know, if you wore shorts, you're going to hell. And he eventually would get to the gospel. He would. He, I have no doubt. I have had multiple friends who talked to him, pastors who talked to him. He loves the Lord, but the way he communicated offended so many that by the time he got to the gospel, they were unwilling to listen. The gospel wasn't the offense. His approach was. He didn't address sin in meaningful ways with people as he engaged them. He just yelled at them across the quad. So we don't want the way we communicate with others to keep us from being able to share the gospel. We want to communicate in ways that honor God and not make our words themselves cause people not to listen to the gospel. Now, that's the first kind of application point. We strive to communicate the gospel in truth and in love. Second, as Christians, we're called to speak in ways that are gracious, that are loving, that are true. We're not to bear false witness. We're not to slander or gossip. Our words are to be seasoned with salt. Um, But sometimes they're not nice. When I say nice, I mean the polite, be nice to your siblings kind of things you learn. Most of what I know about speech I learned from my mother. Don't lie. Be nice to your sister. Um, Be polite. Be nice to your sister. Um, You know, speak when spoken to. Be nice to your sister. It kind of goes like that on and on. And yes, we want our speech to be polite and gracious. But at times, we will speak truth in ways that are loving, but not necessarily nice. We will exhort one another to pursue Christ. We will confront one another in sin. In love, we will confront them. And that may be a confrontation that is not, you know, a nice, be nice to each other, but it is a confrontation that is loving and cares for their soul. Jesus, I I do not think, Jesus knew men's hearts, so let's not communicate exactly the way he did, but we can see from the way he communicated, because he was without sin, that there are times where our words will be strong. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed walls of tombs full of dead men's bones. I mean, these are words he said to people, and he did not sin. Now, I say this because not always are our words going to be, you know, nice and polite, but they should always be loving and seasoned with salt, calling people to repentance and faith, calling people, encouraging people. Even if our words hurt, it's infinitely better to speak a truth to a brother that may hurt him than it is to let him walk in that sin. 
I've had a brother do that for me regarding communication. A, good, a friend in this church, a good friend in this church, who said, Keith, I don't think you're communicating well with your spouse, with Claudia. And he confronted me on that. And he did it very graciously and very lovingly. But it was a confrontation. It was a, it was a rebuke. And I am forever grateful that he cared enough about me to say that. I'm forever thankful to the Lord for him because the Lord was able to use that to open my eyes to see the way I had been communicating. So sometimes we, we will lovingly say something that may hurt for a moment like a surgeon's scalpel to remove a cancer, to, remove, to help remove cancer, to help a brother grow in Christ and, and kill sin. Now, 2 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2.1 says, our speech, in our speech we should put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So there are some particulars for you. In all of our speech, whether it be sharing the gospel or talking about history, whether it be talking about your job, whether it be talking about computers, for me, I know everybody loves talking about computers, um, we want to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We want to be our speech, as Colossians 4, 6 says, to be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each person. So our, our speech overall, we communicate the gospel, we communicate truth. We're to speak out from the overflow of our heart and put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Speak truth, speak love, speak, uh, speak in ways that are honest and in integrity in ways that bless others, even if you don't like them. Especially when you don't like them, pray for them. Why do I say that? Because we're coming into conflict. Um, oftentimes, our speech, we are people who speak, we are people who communicate, and we are people who have conflict. What we're going to see in this next point is we've seen the power of speech, we've seen the, how speech comes from the overflow of the heart and how we are to speak truth. But in light of this, we are going to see how communication that honors God seeks reconciliation in conflict. So finally, we get to the subject of conflict. It's here. But I had to do the hard work of communication first because if we don't deal with communication well, we are going to conflict a lot more. Conflict is, going, conflict is not a disagreement. It's not saying, well, honey, I think this room should be pink and honey, I think this room should be blue. That's not conflict, that's a disagreement. Conflict is not saying what, you know, going back and forth to discuss something. Conflict is a point at which an argument has, has grown to the point that it's become emotional, it's become personal. You're no longer working together, you're working against each other. Whether that be spouses, whether that be friends, coworkers, children and other children, there's this shift that happens where it starts as something very, you know, how about them Cubs? Oh, I like those Cardinals. And then it becomes, you know, rivalry. Then it becomes conflict. Then it becomes, well, I can't go to church with you because you're a Cubs fan. Well, you're a Cardinals fan. Then you got to move across the country. That's, that's obviously an exaggeration, I hope. But uh, conflict happens, guys. It happens in all of our lives. It's important we address it. Now, conflict is, is an emotional event that can happen for a variety of reasons. A disagreement, 
a sin, a wrong done, even just a simple misunderstanding. I have a friend who would get upset sometimes when he heard something, and then he would say, is this what I hear you saying? That was code for him. He, would, he had learned enough of his own idiosyncrasies that if he was getting angry about something, he would sum up the other person's argument and bring it back to them to make sure he understood it properly so there was no miscommunication. Is this what I hear you saying? When I heard that, I kind of go, whoop. <laughs> I'm like, I said something that offended and I'm not sure what. But that was a good method he had to, to, to mediate conflict. Now, conflict happens for a lot of reasons. We're going to go back to the book of James chapter 4 to address the, the cause of conflict. James chapter 4 addresses the cause of conflict. Remember, James is writing this to the church. I just want to make that apparent again and again. This isn't written to, to unbelievers. This is written to the church. James chapter 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is with no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns earnestly over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, what causes conflicts among you? What causes flights? I'm in the book of James to begin. I have to come back. He answers the question very clearly here. He points out that our passions are at war within us. What we want, our desires are at war within us. You know, we, we, we desire and do not have. So we kill, we destroy. We covet. We, 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 we want what somebody else has, so we fight. We speak in sinful ways because our passions, our desires, and how, our passions and desires and how they drive us. We covet our time. So when we get asked to do something when we don't want to, we start fights. What does this look like? Well, let's think about it for a moment. How often do we get into fights because we have to be right? How often does conflict happen in our lives, not because we are right, but because we have to be right? I remember arguing with a young man in college. I was driving to a, a weekend event for, the, I think, the fall semester in my old uh, red Suzuki sidekick, tiny little thing. I had three other guys in the car with me. And we were discussing, this was morning, we were driving south. No, this was evening we were driving south, I apologize. We were discussing what side, what direction, cardinal direction, west or east, the sun rises and sets in. I'm not joking, this was college age people. 
I'm like, the sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. I'm even like, we're going south, that's north, where's the sun at now? And, I'm argue, and this other guy goes, no, the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. And I was so befuddled. Now, I'm driving here, and I'm so befuddled that I'm getting upset. I'm like, no, we, there, there was no Google. We didn't have smartphones yet, so you couldn't just pull this up and say, here. We're debating. So this is first. I'm like, I'm back and forth, back and forth, and it's like, no, it rises in the, in the west and sets in the east. I'm like, I'm finally like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. It rises in the east and sets in the west. I'm upset. I'm driving, and I hit a cone. Not a cone. I hit a barrel. I hit a 55-gallon construction barrel because I was getting so emotionally into this conflict, and I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. Now, funny story, right? The barrel, praise the Lord, was not full. The barrel was empty. And I saw the barrel go about 80 miles an hour the other direction across two lanes of of construction into a a, uh, culvert and up into a farmland. It just exploded away from me. But that conflict between us wasn't about, it didn't get to be about truth, although it was in part. It was about me being right and him being wrong. This is a great example because he was wrong, but it wasn't about that. I could have said, I need to shut my mouth because I'm not going to get anywhere here. But instead, I argued and argued and argued to the point I got so angry, I hurt my car and showed myself an idiot because I wasn't paying attention to my driving. I showed myself a fool. Conflict happens. It happens for a number of reasons, like I said. Now, James pointed out how our passions, how our desires are at war. That's what you saw there in my story. My passion to be right, even, you know, convictionally I was right and I wasn't going to let anybody stop me from arguing. Another reason that James points out for conflict is that people don't ask God to provide. You know, he causes war within you, your passions, you desire and do not have, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Either people don't ask God to provide or when they ask they don't ask God to, to bless this for his purposes. They ask, the, God, provide me a million dollars so I can have a, a jet and a nice home and I don't have to work anymore. Like we, pursue, we ask God to provide for things to spend it on ourselves and our passions, not in ways that honor him as our father. James points out that we cannot love the world and God. We are called to love the Lord. So how does James call the church to deal with this? Well, James calls the church to deal with this in verses 6, 7, and 8, and really 9 and 10, 6 through through 10. But he says, he gives grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse you hands, you sin- your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James gives a couple of different methods here for dealing with conflict, starting in us. Dealing with conflict never starts with the other person, guys. It never starts with, I just need to fix them. That's what causes conflict. I want to fix my friend's understanding of geography and astrophysics. 
that, that, that's what started conflict. It was a noble goal, but when it didn't start, when it, when it started to get, become, anima, become animosity, I should have stopped. So James gives a couple of different examples here. James calls for humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James calls us to humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So James calls the people of God to pursue humility. He calls them to submit to God. He calls them to resist the devil and to draw near to God. This is how to deal with the conflict that's happening. They're called to to humility, which means thinking better of others than themselves, caring more about the other person than just being right. They're called to submit to God, to obey His commands, to pursue the Lord, not themselves. They're called to resist the devil, to to, to see that He's at work and to resist His schemes, and instead to pursue holiness. James calls them, draw near to the Lord, pursue holiness. And these same four methods are good for us in our lives when it comes to conflict. Whether, whether, you know, conflict comes so often because we want to live as though this is our world and we are, we are God. And when other, everybody else doesn't fit along with that paradigm of us being God and them doing what we want, we get angry. So, humility, submitting to God, fleeing the devil, and drawing near to God are four methods we can use to deal with conflict, to deal with our own hearts before it begins, and how to deal with conflict when we're in the midst of it. Now, when we deal with conflict like these four methods, humility, drawing near to God, resisting the devil, and uh, submitting to God, are going to end conflict in our lives frequently, not always. Like, if we're in conflict we need to remember this and apply it. Like, okay, I need to stop arguing with Phil about who's better, the Cubs or the Cardinals, and just be humble and realize that that is a preference thing. If, if I'm going to argue with a coworker about something, I need to realize that I need to be humble. I need to be gracious. I need to see if I'm pursuing my will being done and me getting what I want, or am I really pursuing what's best for the, for the company in that case? You know, husbands, because oftentimes we, we take God's role, call the lead, and we say, well, that means I should get what I want. We're called to sacrifice for our wives, to love our wives well. And sometimes that means that we lovingly choose actions that sacrifice what we want to bless our spouse. Now, after con- conflict, these, using these methods that James gives us, as we strive to hump humility submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near to God, these practices being applied lead us to a point where we need to pursue reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a restoration of a relationship. Conflict brings a brokenness to a relationship. It brings a a, a shattering of the normal day-to-day operations of how you interact with another person. So we are called to be uh, it's called the reconciliation just as we're given a ministry of reconciliation being God and man in the gospel we're called to reconcile with one another now 
let's think of a couple things in the, in the light of conflict that reconciliation is not. So reconciliation is not having a fight about something, saying, sorry, honey, then acting as though it never happened without dealing with the problem. That's not reconciliation. Reconciliation is not one person verbally running over the other person than acting like everything is good after they've had their say. Reconciliation is not ignoring conflict until it goes away, pretending like it never happened. So those are things reconciliation is not. They're common ways we try to deal with arguments, fights, but they never do us any good to ignore, to brush off, or to just domineer over someone else. Instead, reconciliation is asking for forgiveness of sins that we've committed against the other party. Reconciliation is addressing the issue that caused the conflict between the participants. Reconciliation is repenting of sin and striving to live life differently. If conflict arises because of sin, we need to be repenting of that sin. And reconciliation is striving to restore the relationship in light of forgiveness and what God has done for us in Christ. So we want to strive to communicate in ways that honor God as we've seen, as, this, as first, good communication will lessen times of conflict in our lives. If we're communicating well in ways that honor God, we're going to have a lot less conflict in our lives as we prefer others and love them. But when conflict does come, let us strive to seek reconciliation um, during and after the conflict. In this, in striving for reconciliation, we're being peacemakers and children of God. So what does this look like practically? That depends on who you're dealing with. When you're in conflict with someone, some people are the slow burn. Some people are the pop and fizz. I'm a pop and fizz. I get angry. I get upset. Pretty quickly, God uses that needle to poke my ego. I get deflated. And within five to six minutes, generally, I'm like, okay, I was wrong. My attitude was wrong. I need to repent. Others are the longer, you know, fuse. It's like I need to, to think about this. I need to pray about this. I need to address this myself. And I'm not ready to talk about it. What can so often happen for me is I've, I'm three minutes later, I'm like, okay, I want to address the issue. I want to, I want to restore the relationship. My, and uh, other people are like, I'm angry right now. I don't want to even think about talking to you. So when we deal with conflict, we deal with real people with real personalities, with real issues, and we need to be gracious. When we deal with addressing conflict and bringing reconciliation, that doesn't come on our time sometimes, oftentimes. Pursuing reconciliation doesn't mean, well, we just had a fight about this subject. I want us both to say sorry now, so I'm getting this off my plate, so I feel better about it. Once again, we're just causing conflict again because we're wanting things our way again without any regard to the other person. Pursuing reconciliation is caring for the other person. It's humbly coming to them, confessing your sin, first to God, but then to the other person, asking for their forgiveness, addressing the issue, and that's going to look very different from person to person, relationship to relationship. But it's what we should all strive for, whether that's spouses, friends, siblings, whether that's coworkers. 
In cases of conflict, we want to strive for reconciliation. So this morning, we've examined what the Scriptures say about communication, what they say about conflict. We've seen that God calls us to communicate in a way that honors Him, to speak the truth. We've seen the power of speech to shape lives. We've seen the nature of the tongue. We've seen the, that we need a new heart, a transformed heart to speak truth. We've looked at what we should speak and how conflict and reconciliation are to be applied. And I hope that we've learned today that communication that honors God, recognizes its power, flows from a transformed heart, proclaims truth, and seeks reconciliation and conflict. It's my prayer that God's Word today will impact our hearts and lives and lead us to strive to speak and to love each other with our words. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you spoke and the world was formed, that you spoke creation into being. We thank you that you've given us words. You gave us your word, the Bible, that you've taught us, that you showed us the power of speech, Lord. God, I pray that we would rightly see our sin, we would rightly repent of our speech and strive after holiness in speech and in life to become more like Christ. Lord, I pray that we would speak the truth in love, that we would proclaim the gospel, we would encourage one another, and that we would rejoice in all the ways that we don't think that we're even doing it. When we reflect back and see the opportunities you give us to encourage the church, to bless the children, to encourage our families and in community groups. Lord, I pray that as we, as we do conflict, because we're sinners, we would seek and strive after humility and grace and reconciliation and so model between each, each, each other what God has done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.